Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Oh, this is a really special episode because I have on the show today Walter Day, who is um, the founder of esports, essentially. He started um, a company called Twin Galaxies, which was an arcade at first and then became the scoring destination for Guinness Book of World Records. They crowned the world champions. I first saw him on the documentary The King of Kong. I've uh, just been fascinated with him, his work there, but his work doesn't begin and end there. He, he's quite an interesting guy. Uh, he's been has worn many hats, has had several careers, has had held several world records himself. Uh, I mean, just an incredibly interesting guy. So we're going to get right into this, Walter. Thank you for being on the show. Um, but first, I want to talk about your work in the arcade. Let's get that stuff out of the way first, because you kind of made your name in the arcade world. And for, for people who are into video games and who like video games, this is an extraordinarily, it's a really brief era, but it's, but it's, an incredibly important one that people are still involved with today. And you kind of turned Autumna, Iowa, which you've mentioned before, into, you know, this is, I don't know how many people live in that town. I'm guessing a couple thousand, right? Am I, am I close? Oh, it's close. It's close to, thir- I think it's close to 30,000. Oh, okay. So that's a pretty decent sized town. I, I grew up in a town of 5,000. So I thought it was a more akin to that, but 30,000 is a pretty decent size. But you've turned this into you turned it into the video game capital of the world. Um, you now Twin Galaxy started out as an arcade that you owned, correct? Exactly. Okay, so it was an arcade that people could go to, uh, and is an actual arcade. And for those listening, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Walter, the arcade kind of world, like the arcade timeline, is kind of like 1980, late 80s, 81, until the video game crash of 1983. And from 84 to like 85, most of the arcades were closed. That's how quickly like this world kind of blew up. And within that time, you created um, the center of the arcade world and also really started esports, competitive gaming. Um, this is pretty incredible. So how did all of that, like, what was the genesis? Um, because it seems like you kind of went into that with the purpose of creating um, a phenomenon. Was it accidental or was it purposeful? Uh, well, first of all, around the world, many, many people consider me the father of esports. And and here's why. Atom was now considered the birthplace of organized competitive esports. And, and a lot of people now go on road trips and come to Atumwa because there's a huge 220-pound bronze plaque attached to the outside wall of where the Twin Galaxies arcade used to be all those years ago. And on it, it says Twin Galaxies, the historic birthplace of organized competitive esports. When Twin Galaxies came into existence, I opened up the arcade mainly as an excuse to be able to play more and more video games. 
I loved playing video games. And you were you were world champion. I don't I, I don't want to step on that because you you were actually a, a competitive gamer in your own right. You you were a world you had a world record for Make Tracks, which was a, a popular arcade game at the time, correct? That's right. I was the best in the world for a while at Make Tracks. Of course, people today can greatly trump my high score, but that's the way things go in the competitive world. So essentially, the arcade had been open for three months when on January 18th, 1982, Time Magazine came out with a feature story on video games and their, and their phenomenal success and their phenomenal growth as a cultural phenomena uh, throughout America and the world. And uh, there's a little box, a little feature box in that nine or ten page article <clears throat> about a man named Steve Jurassic in Chicago who put a quarter in a game and played Defender for 15 hours nonstop. It was either 15 hours or 14 hours nonstop. And uh, he got a score of around 15 million points. And a kid came up to me and says, I can beat that score in the magazine. I said, what magazine? And he showed it to me. I said, okay. I didn't believe he could do it. But I said, go ahead and try it. So that weekend, he actually put a quarter in a game and played Defender for about 24 hours. Wow. And broke that record. But here's what's interesting. Here's the, here's the most amazing thing about it. When I saw that he was actually going to break the record, <clears throat> I called up the local radio station. And to my surprise, they got extremely interested. And they came over in person and started covering this as a major story, you know, with live updates regularly. And so I said, this is interesting. So I called the TV station. They got extremely interested and came over and started covering it with live updates regularly. And then the newspaper, they came over and started and uh, and it's going on like this. And I'm thinking, wow, this is this is really quite a story. And then the big surprise started happening. Our media started getting contacted from media in St. Louis and Chicago and Minneapolis and far away in Kansas City. It was blowing into a story that became regional, if not even national. And by the time the weekend was over, UPI, United Press International, issued a national story on this kid breaking the record on Defender. And I was very, very impressed because – uh, we, we, you know, this was this was a very revealing thing, that this was the vogue of the time, and that the world was fascinated by excellence in video game playing. So essentially, when Monday morning came, I called up Williams Electronics that made Defender, and tried to find out if they were if they knew what the world record was. And they said, no, Mr. Day, we, we get called by lots and lots of people every day. We have no idea what the record is because no one keeps the scores. So I called a couple of magazines, and they said the same thing, that they get called every day about video game scores, but no one keeps track of the scores, so we have no idea what the record is on any game, because we get called on lots of games. So then I called seven or six more manufacturers, so that by the end of the day, I had made nine phone calls, and they all said the same thing, that they had no idea what the world records were on their respective games, because no one keeps track of it. So I thought about that over. Overnight, and the next day, called back all nine of those places I called and told them that we had a scoreboard and we were keeping track of the score if they needed to know. And through the miracle of the divine karma and fate, all nine of them said, That's great, thank you. We will refer people to you and put your name and number up here at our front row. We will send them to you as the authorities who know what the score is. And it happened as simple as that. A half an hour in phone calls, and it was all done. Well, hold, hold on. Well, I, I do want to tell you, not to burst your bubble or anything, I don't know that it was so much fate as it was no one else wanted to do that job, and you were offering to do it, and they were like, awesome, let's out. You were one of the first gaming outsourced uh, sources in, in, in the world, I think. 
Well, let me let me that that's a, that's a very interesting telling point. But let me explain it. Let me explain it in these words. Okay. Uh, so I did the nine phone calls. So went back. To, so I went back. You know, satisfied. This is an interesting day, and went back to play golf. Thirty minutes later, a phone rang. One of my attendants tapped me on the shoulder and says, there's, there's someone on the phone calling long distance about a video game score. And I went to the phone, and it was a man named Casey Murphy from Goodlettsville, Tennessee, who to this day we've never been able to have contact with again. Don't know who he is or where he is. He has no idea that he was the first score being submitted. Wow. And he had a score on Galaga. And I look up at our scoreboard that's on the wall, and I see that our night manager has a higher score than him. And I say in a solemn tone into the phone that, Casey, you have the world's second highest score. <laughs> and he gets all excited and says, I can beat that. And the next day he called back again, and he did beat it. So that was the beginning of it. Within weeks, we were getting many, many – well, you know, within maybe a week, we're getting you know, a dozen phone calls a day. Maybe within a month, we're getting 20, 30 phone calls a day. You know, I, I throw numbers out, but it's hard to keep track of how it really went. All I know is that we were the video game scorekeepers for the whole world, and overnight became, became the world's most famous arcade. And that Life magazine coming, because all, all of the industry were referring people to us. Then That's Incredible came and did a big contest with us, because the video game industry was referring people to us, because we were the organization and the only organization. And I need to explain that right now in these words, so that'll be understood by everybody. Okay. At every arcade around the nation, the games in those arcades would have high scores on them. So everybody would be in competition to have the highest score in the arcade. And if you got the highest score in the arcade, that was just no big deal. You means you beat everybody else who's playing the game in your local community. When Twin Galaxies came in and when an arcade went out of business, business or a game was moved, the, the, when the game was moved, the scores were forgotten and the accomplishments just washed away as if they had never happened. And games would get moved all the time because they had to circulate them to keep them making the money at the highest level they could possibly make at any, every at every given moment. So, and when contests were done, you know, be thrown away and be forgotten when the games go away or when the arcade closes. But when Twin Galaxies came into existence, it established a global esports arena, the first global esports arena that united all the arcades, at least to heard our message, became part of our system. And that was quite a few, actually. Unite them into a global esports arena so that anybody anywhere could play anybody else anywhere by using twin galaxies as the go-between because we would create the rules and maintain the rules and we enforce the rules we establish the game settings we're establishing the verification processes we develop and establish the leaderboard we'd announce the champions we crown the champions and honor the champions and then we'd also get them in the media because the media in each town like if you're in a, if you're in albuquerque new mexico and you get a high score on a game it wouldn't mean anything to the media if you said i beat hey i beat my good friend who also plays the game but if you tell them, tell them that you beat the best in the world and you're recognized by the authority, which is, which is Twin Galaxies, as being the world champion. The media went wild because they had a world champion that could be verified and confirmed and was legitimate. So it caused a whole world of media attention to be drawn to, to this growing competitive video game environment that would not have otherwise been possible or would have happened because suddenly world champions were being established and that was a tremendous news story for the global media everywhere this was the birth of esports even though it doesn't even though in a spiritual way it resembles what's going on today it was the birthplace of esports 
organization bringing everybody together and recognize and honor the rules to be created, rules to be enforced, and then put on to be established. Here, Walter, let me ask you one question here. Um, so, uh, when you talk, because one of the things is, you know, I, all that makes perfect sense to me. One of the things, and I want to talk about this later, because I think this this is kind of where, um, like, if there's any controversy that ever surrounded Twin Galaxies, it's on verification methods and validations, which I want to talk about later on. But in these early days, when this was mainly like a phone based system, like you said, you were playing a game and the guy called in about Gorf. You know, how did you verify, or did you just take people at their word in these early days? Oh, that, that, that's the perfect question, because it's actually one of the most amazing adventures of doing the whole thing. This, this whole thing was kind of like, this whole thing was birthed out of me. Great. <laughs> and so, <laughs> <All right. laughs> Walter Day brought to the table his personality that was stamped on the whole thing. And my personality at the beginning was I was completely trusting, and I was taking people at their word at the beginning, because it was un- unfathomable that someone would lie about a video game score. It was just a, it was a growing it was a, it was it was a growing curve I had to go through. <clears throat> so essentially, uh, initially it would be people uh, based on their word, and then it would be where they had to actually send to the mail a filled out form that had signatures on it, affidavits of witnesses, <laughs> and the arcade management, and a photograph of the screen with a score on yeah. it. But as time went on, that. That had to fall to the wayside because, because you got to realize that with the incredible interest growing and the huge amounts of money being made by arcades initially, eventually almost every small town had three arcades. They were in competition with each other, and when they began to fail, arcade management all over the place, at least a lot of places, uh, were hoping that if they could have a champion at their arcade, that it would cause – free media attention that would cause players to flock to them and give, an, un, give them an advantage over the other arcades. So in other words, the arcade management became a terrible, terrible witness because they had a vested interest in their local people being declared champions and hopes that it would help them uh, to keep their doors open by generating more attention for their place, free advertisement for their place. A bigger following of players flocking to their place. So essentially, it wasn't working out that well. As time went on, I even developed uh, the scoreboard, uh, what were they called? Scoreboard consultants who would actually go and watch some people play. Eventually, it had to evolve, evolve into video games, uh, I mean, videotapes. That would take some while to reach that point, but eventually it became videotape tapes for a long, long time. And we had thousands and thousands and thousands of videotapes uh, of people's gameplay. And even then it was a problem because there were all sorts of secrets and glitches and bugs and tricks and illegal tricks that had to be monitored. And so it became difficult. So all along the way, all along the way, it was the war trying to ferret out and discern who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. But I had a lot of people who had good faith involved and wanted to do their best to verify scores. And then it became even more complicated because sometimes games were so subtle that the only other person who could determine whether or not the guy's doing it without tricks is the competitor of the guy who's also good at the game. So that became a controversy. So Mr. X is good at this game, and Mr. Y is also good at this game and happens to be a referee. So it makes sense that Mr. Y would watch the game to be able to verify whether Mr. X was uh, doing this trick he's not supposed to do. 
But that would cause a problem because Mr. X would complain then that all his hard-earned secrets that he spent a fortune on learning how to play are, are being given away to Mr. Y, who's his competitor, who's now going to beat him because now he's given away all his tricks to him. And so it became very, became very difficult you know, to find a way through all this stuff. Uh, to, 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 you know what I mean? No, yeah. You can see how difficult Absolutely. it Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is what's so tricky. And you know, hopefully, because I want to wrap up the history of this, but um, I, I want to talk about this in detail because a lot of this has hit the news recently. But but no, I, I think that this was you know, and, and in the movie, uh, and in the in the movie King of Kong, like this, it's a documentary. Um, and I'm you know, being in the entertainment business, I know that documentaries aren't you know, they they aren't perfect life reflected. It's still a narrative. Uh, it's a fiction. It's a fiction film that happens to be real, uh, meaning they use the same technique. So, when um, I'm saying that, because it's not necessarily the the exactly what probably happened while they were filming that movie. However, you know, you have a very tight knit gaming group of people, people who have been world record holders, people who were part of the original arcade movement, people who set the records on these things, and then you have people who now, with a resurgence of arcade games, are coming up. And with with so many different ways to kind of manipulate the system and the advance. I mean, look, people in politics are getting busted with deep fakes, um, which are basically putting their faces and, and making them say things they never said. So it's only it's only a matter of time before these same type of people who are into video games and, and into video and into all this stuff are going to manipulate scores, manipulate video. So I can only imagine. Uh, the difficulty that it would be, the, the amount of the politics behind verification of scores, I can only imagine uh, as someone who you seem very trustworthy and wants to do the right thing. Not everyone is uh, is in that is as trustworthy, um, you know. And I think that that must have just been an absolute nightmare, especially as you know. Famously, uh, one of the original people in there is Steve Sanders, who claimed to have gotten a three million point score on Donkey Kong. Um, and, and he was, you know, he, he admitted this, he came out and, and admitted his wrongdoing and, you know, he wasn't the only one, but that score right now, the world record is just over a million. So he was claiming at the time a record that was three times what's even possible today. And, you know, I imagine that it's just kind of, it becomes part of the culture of wanting to always be on top as any competitor does. And I imagine that must have put you in a tremendously difficult position, um, being so close to a lot of these guys and also understanding it, but also wanting to run a tight ship. So I can only imagine what that was like for you. Oh, yeah. It was a very difficult process to go through. So, you know, once you kind of like worked out, you know, the bugs of trying to like when you started putting everyone in kind of in order and you were able to work through the bugs a little bit because you were a referee until 2010. So you were doing this for a long period of time. You were the guy there. Um, so when, when you left in 2010, did you put, what was the state of Twin Galaxies at that point when you kind of, when you kind of left it? Well, on June 1st, 2008, uh, I turned the company over to a man named Pete Bouvier and, and I was, I was essentially completely retired from being a referee, except that I had the status, uh, an honorary status of being chief evangelist. So I only did... I only did a few things from that time onward and mainly tried to do promotional historical stuff. Um, But essentially, so all the refereeing was done by a big body of referees. That was about 40 or 50 people, I think. I'm not quite certain if I'm remembering that correctly because I had distanced myself from it personally because I just finally didn't want to 
I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to be in the crosshairs, you know, of, of all the negativity that was going between people uh, arguing and fighting over scores. It wasn't valuable enough experience to me. Video games weren't that important to me that I wanted to have that be my lifestyle, being in the thick of all that warfare and all that controversy and all those difficulties. So I kind of like was stepping back from it because I wanted to do the music that I want to do. So therefore, I wasn't in the mainstream. I wasn't in the front line anymore from June 1st, 2008. I just did a couple things. I did. I did. I, I helped Billy Mitchell verify a score on Donkey Kong. And I might have done a couple other things, but essentially, uh, I was not really a I was not really a referee. After the only time I'd be a referee is an honorary thing where they have an event where I have Walter Day here to watch people play, and it was very very lighthearted and very very casual, but not a serious thing where I'm actually responsible for watching and verifying people's scores. So I'd have to say that it was June first, two thousand eight. So you're saying two thousand eight. So that's a, that's eleven years ago. Um, so you haven't really been involved oh, yeah. in, in the, the, the game verification process. But, I mean, it's got to be kind of cool, even if you step away from it, because it's really taken on a life of its own. I mean, because it went from doing arcade games, and now, you know, I interviewed um, uh, Jonas Neubauer, who's the world, like a six-time world champion at Tetris. And, you know, he it's very specific. Like, he it's the Nintendo version, you know, on a Nintendo, whatever. Um, and it's, you know, that's, so the console games are on Twin Galaxies now. Um, you know, they, they even, now they even allow some emulators on there, even though you have to verify that's an emulator and, and all that, which, which is a whole nother gray area. Um, but, you know, they have modern games, you know, esports. I mean, it has just grown to, I think they even, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they even mention board games on there as well. So it's moved on beyond video games. But it's, you know, it's every console imaginable, every record. They've got the top five people. They've got speed runs. You know, so it's not just limited to scores. Um, so it's really grown. But I got to tell you, I think the magic of the arcade era, and I, I believe you probably say this eloquently somewhere you're quoted, but the beauty of it was the early era, era where one quarter got you three lives and you got the high score. There were no continues. There were no multiple quarters. It was just you versus the machine. You know that's why Pac-Man, Galaga, um, Donkey Kong, uh, Centipede. These are the games that really are the ones that tested people's ability. Uh, and I think you, you you know you mentioned the reason why is because of people's they're they're basic they're they're extraordinarily basic. It's about puzzle solving. It's about you know, hand-eye coordination. It requires the basics without any chance of, um, you know, with, without having to continue and be able to, uh, you know, allow to artificially prolong your gaming experience or whatever. It's kind of the pure era. I, am I kind of summing that up correctly? Oh, you said it so perfectly that you you're you're, you're speaking in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I used your words, so that's why it sounded so good. Uh, you, you, I think you were the one who really, I mean, it, that really spoke to me because I think that that represents the era and you were, you know, you were extraordinarily, um, important in developing that. I mean, you're the guy who created that whole thing. Um, you know, and not necessarily, it, it doesn't sound like from necessarily a passion for video games. Um, what, what do you think was, what was the reason that you really worked at that so hard uh, and and really kind of you know even with the Life magazine shoot what was what was in it for you to to promote everything so much just even after the crash of the arcade world? Well, you know that's it might be difficult to convey where a person gets their passion and their interest from, but for some reason, 
I just was filled with the, with the desire and the intention and the passion to, to do this again and again and again and again and again. Went on year after year after year. I believed in it, and also I had fun with it. It caused bliss. It caused my personal bliss, as they say. It caused my personal happiness. I was intrigued by it. Uh, back at the roots of the beginning of it, in 1968-69, I was in what they call the hippie drug culture. And I'm sure you've heard of Haight-Ashbury. I, I did a whole episode on, on the 60s, the time of the 60s, Haight-Ashbury and all that, um, with a guy named James D. who told me all the different stories um, of that era. And that, that is a very unique time in American history. Oh, so I was there. Okay. So I was a <laughs> part right. of Haight-Ashbury and Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. And so I was part of the drug culture for about a year and a half. And taking drugs hurt my nervous system so much that when I stopped taking the drugs, I had constant headaches, earache, eye aches, back aches, my feet ached. My digestion didn't hardly exist anymore. I couldn't hardly sleep at night. Everything was like shot. The whole system was like really stressed and shot and worn out. And, uh, and I met someone else with similar symptoms, and they told me that they had got rid of them by doing something called transcendental meditation. So I immediately went and learned. Transcendental, there's a lot of things out there called meditation. But transcendental meditation is a specific one that's different from all the other things that people say, oh, I meditate. Transcendental meditation, you actually go and learn at a center, a TM center that's in every every area. There's someone who teaches TM who's actually been trained by by the, 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 the famous sage Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the guy with the long hair and a beard and what have you. And uh, and when you learn transcendental meditation, it's super easy to learn. No one fails. It's super simple to do. And you immediately get results. And the results I got was that all those symptoms went away. All the headaches, the backaches, the eye aches, the bad digestion, the low energy level, the improper sleep at night, the feet aching, all that stuff went away real fast because transcendental meditation not only rests the nervous system and heals, not only does it get stress out, but it heals the nervous system at the deepest level and then starts the brain. It, then the bonuses start happening. The brain becomes clearer. The creativity comes alive again. The happiness comes in there. The energy level increases and life becomes a wonderful experience again. And that was my experience. So I was very intrigued by the process of growing excellence that comes through the expansion of consciousness and the unfolding of your full potential, which is one of the main concepts that's brought forward when you learn transcendental meditation. That is simply as removing all the stress and limitations in your nervous system and your mind that allows you to unfold your full mental potential and your whole physiological potential. So I was very, very attuned to the idea of excellence in action and the skill set that's needed to become the best of the best. So when I first discovered video games, I realized that some players were better than other players. And I was intrigued by whatever it was that made them have that level of excellence. So when I traveled the country as an old newspaper salesman, like I think you're familiar mm -hmm. with, I had hundreds of thousands of old newspapers. Actually, there was one point when I was offering the newspapers from many, many different dealers. And that's when you saw the headlines, 8 million newspapers, because between all of us, it was about 8 million newspapers that I had to draw on to sell. But I had hundreds of thousands in my uh, storage in, in Fairfield, Iowa, and I'd sell old newspapers as old as the year 1590. 
and I would go on the road selling them. But wherever I stopped, wherever I went, I'd stop and play video games in the local arcades. I even had newspapers and magazines and TV come and interview me in the arcade while I was playing video games because they were there to see the newspapers. But I wanted them to come so I could also play video games at the same time. But I'd, I'd write down scores and I'd note high scores on games that I see in the arcades that I went through. And I guess I went through about 100 or more arcades in the course of the summer of 2001. You mean 1981. And noted a lot of scores everywhere I went because I was fascinated by how good could a person become at this game or that game. So I already had a huge background, a huge propensity or bias towards opening up the scoreboard by the time that opportunity came in February of 1982. So that's a very much important part. Uh, of the boilerplate of the story. Wow. So I, I don't think I realized that. So that was, so that really kind of, I mean, you've really had all these interests kind of, they've morphed into each other in a way. And they, uh, they converged. Yeah. Like, the, like they kind of morph and change and then some run parallel. Um, but, but there's, I'm sure if you really, if I, if I'd done my homework correctly and I'd taken a step back, I could probably see what the patterns are. Um, but the, but they seem to all be connected in some kind of strange way. Your talents do not begin and end uh, at, at Twin Galaxies or the arcade movement or the world record keeping. Uh, you're into quite a lot of very interesting things, uh, which which I, this is you know part of why you're you're an ideal person to have on the show because you're into so many different things. Uh, so if you don't mind, let's can we run down some of the non-arcade. Uh, we'll talk about the non-arcade side of Walter Day, if that's all right. That's good. So you are now. First of all, as of right now, let, let's try to go, we'll go current and then we'll go backwards. But but from what I could tell, right now you are doing two two main things. First of all, you've just kickstarted um, a a book called the Walter Day Superstars of Gaming, which I believe is is a is a book that chronicles your trading card collection, the trading cards that you that you print, uh, and you have, and on top of that, you have an entire several lines of trading cards that you are producing for various different topics. Is that right? That's right. In, in November 1982, Life Magazine came to Ottawa, Iowa. And on November 7th, 1982, photographed all the top era. They were the original first eSports superstars. And they were in a famous Life magazine photo spread that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Mm -hmm. And part of that spread showed the individual players posing with their respective games that they conquered. And the way that they were laid out, these little individual photo blocks, was that they looked like trading cards. And it was a small leap for me and many other people to think, God, we should make video game player trading cards. April or May of 1983 actually made the move and started having kids. And, of course, their parental per- – they're, they're all young. Kids were young back then, of course. The video game players were young back then. Uh, I needed parental approval, and I had parents sending pictures of their kids posing in front of their – favorite video games that they had conquered. So I got numerous, numerous submissions for a proposed set of trading cards that I, pr- that I print uh, their, their summer of 1983. But back in 1983, it wasn't a dynamic, interactive thing it has become today. And it was a phenomenal amount of expense <laughs> to even print one card. Right. So the prohibitive printing cost stopped that from happening in 1983. But the seed was planted, the vision was there, and the inspiration was up and running to do it. 
And then in 1985, in the summer of 85, I tried again, and I laid out plans for a card set of 110 cards that would feature the top players and their games that they conquered. And I actually had it as the business plan I submitted to some Texans who were looking, considering investing in it. But once again, the high prohibitive printing costs stopped that project from happening at that time. But it was something in my heart and actually a desire I had. It was a passionate thing where I loved to do the trading cards of the video game players. But we now we fast forward to 2009 and we are creating an Atumwa the International Video Game Hall of Fame. And I ask someone in Fairfield, Iowa, where I live, his name is Greg Hoos. He goes by the name the, the Gray Goose. And he's that designer. And he and his daughter and son designed a bunch of trading cards for me that were real ornate and outrageously colored with a lot of designs. And today we call those the circus cards. And they were the prototype cards that were made to be handed out as gifts. I think I think 85 different players were on the cards, and we pay, made only uh, less, like maybe 90 copies of each one. And they were slightly larger than a normal trading card, but we handed them out as free gifts and promotional items there at the what we called the Big Bang, which was uh, the unveiling of the plans for the International Video Game Hall of Fame in Ottumwa, Iowa. And they were very popular. And then the next year, actually, they kind of like just were there as that that project paused there in limbo after that event in 2009 or 10. I can't remember which year it was, 2009 or 10. But by the next year, 2011, I formally myself designed a set of trading cards, starting with uh, Billy Mitchell was number one because he was, you know, the most popular player at that time, most, you know, most, most famous and everything. And so... Uh, and I started designing trading cards and publishing them in the year 2011. And in the course of the year 2011, I came out with what's called the Superstars of 2011. And it was going to have 200 cards to the set. Before the year was over, I had 128 of them in print. And the printing costs had become down, so that it was now a doable thing. I got people donating money. I came up with my own money. I borrowed some money. And I got 128 Different cards printed, a 1,000 copies of each one. And these cards were, I called them the limousine set because of the different design features that were on them. But I also started bringing in the old circus cards from two years earlier. I called them the circus cards, and I merged them all together. And there had been a card number one for the circus cards, and then a card number one for the limousine, which is Billy. So I merged them together and let both of them remain number one. So that's why there's multiple cards that are number one in my card set but anyway by 2011 i had the superstars of 2011 and it was a project that i didn't think was going to go on too long at that time but i just couldn't give it up so superstars of 2012 came then 13 and 14 and 15 and now we're about to start our 10th year 10 years of cards and in that time for the video game see the superstars of, of each year they are video game of pinball trading cards, okay? And that set has now reached card number 3,230. Wow. And of that number, over two way over 2,000 are actually in print and circulated somewhere around the world. Now, where can you buy, like, if I want to go and buy, like, a pack of the superstars of 2018 or 2019, uh, where, do, where can I buy them? Well, we have a website called thewalterdaycollection.com. 
So you might try there. But we're not really we haven't really been that well set up for selling things. It seems I've been giving them away so much. I've given away over a quarter of a million trading cards so far as <laughs> gifts to people. So it's not I especially <laughs> love to give them to people who have children and I send them to the children and the children go wild over them. So it's been a fun thing for me. Okay. I'm not much of a businessman. I don't have a good business plan on this. <laughs> I do this because well actually here's why I do this. Yeah. Here's what I explain. Yeah. Because I've now given I think it's uh I think it's 95, I think I just did my 95th in Australia, 95 trading card award ceremonies, 95 of them. Wow. One of them was done on the stage at the Smithsonian Institute. One was done on the, two different ones were done on the stage with Video Game Live with uh, Tommy, Tommy Tallarico. Uh, you know, one has been done on the stage in Helsinki, Finland, in front of like 8,000 science fiction authors. Uh, at the Worldcon, where they get the Hugo Award out. Then it was done on the stage again at another Hugo Award ceremony in uh, San Jose. And then at the Nebula Awards for Science Fiction, five straight years in a row. Uh, so 95 trading card award ceremonies. And this one I just did in Australia saw, I think, about 55 new trading cards and 65 new people honored on with a big, big ornate awards. And for my birthday on May 14th, uh, May 18th this last year in California, we had a ceremony where 144 new trading cards were unveiled. Wow. And, uh, and the sponsor bought 125 beautiful gold frames. And we presented these big uh, ornate awards with gold seals and ribbons and lots of signatures on them to people. So the reason I explained it this way is because here is the singleton behind the whole thing. When the trading cards first came out, uh, there were numerous people who were excited to be on them because – they were video game superstars, video game champions, and uh, and they they embraced the cards tremendously. But when they saw that I was giving the cards out to other people who weren't video game champions, they became angry because they thought the cards should only be there to honor them and their accomplishments, and that anybody else was a less person or their accomplishment was their accomplishment. No, that, their contribution was less. Hold on, hold on. Did that really happen? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There was numerous. There was a few people who were very angry because That's ridiculous. because they 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 needed. They needed the cards to be like a congressional medal of honor. Okay. <laughs> and when they found, because of their own sense of value and self-image. Sure. But when they found out that it wasn't going to be a congressional medal of honor, they became very enraged and thought I was the betray- it was a betrayal because they needed those cards to be all about them and their success. And one of them was vocal saying, "This only 12 or 15 people should be honored. You know, uh, and, and, but, but here's the story of the cards. The cards are a historical document that commemorate the history of the global gaming culture and community because we are the generation that brought to life cyberspace. We are still alive and we are that generation that brought video games to life and created the age of cyberspace, the age of video game playing, the age of competitive gaming. And we can't just honor the people who are on the top who are real famous like Nolan Bushnell or other famous people who brought this all about. It's like a prayer pyramid with just a point at the top but a huge base that underlies and supports that point. And without that base, that point couldn't become the point. So the trading cards are an attempt to commemorate and document all the different people at different stations in that big pyramid and honoring them for their amazing contributions. So the people who are on the trading cards – are the people who have designed the games, who have designed the artwork, who have been champions, who have organized events, 
who have contributed games to events all across the spectrum. People who are working together have made this amazing community and this amazing culture flourish and become the expanded, amazing global phenomenon it has become. And so the analogy is this. If you look at an old tapestry hanging on the wall in a big old-fashioned monastery in Europe, you'll see that that beautiful, colorful picture that's on the tapestry is made of thousands and thousands of colorful threads that have all been woven together. And by working together, they form the picture. And that's who all these people are. I commemorate the lives of the people who have contributed and been a part of this and, uh, 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 and, and honor them by making the trading cards be that widespread in their interest and in their documentation. So the trading cards are that. But on the, but on the way to doing this, I also love doing this so much that I also begin to commemorate my beloved science fiction industry by making trading cards for Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and Isaac Asimov and David Brin. And, and, uh, and I just did a trading card and I gave it to him on a ceremony at the Nebula Awards in Los Angeles for William Gibson, who created the expression cyberspace in 1982. And uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of the story was, Burning Ammonia or something like that. But it's William Gibson. Um, very, very talented writer. He was honored at the Nebula Awards with a trading card and a, fr and a framed award um, this last May. So science fiction, and then I started making them for the people of my community, which is considered an, an amazing renaissance community, Fairfield, the renaissance capital of the world. So there's about 60 cards for the renaissance capital of the world series. There's about 160 cards for the science fiction series. There's 3,230 for the video games. Uh, there's 1,510 designed for the biographical series, and that includes Alexander Graham Bell and George Washington and the guy who invented the, the, pneumat the, the, the inflatable tire and the person who invented the, invented the, uh, uh, you know, the washing machine. All the inventors, all the designers, all the uh, leaders, all the, all the kings and queens. So 1,510 of them in the biographical series, but a lot of those aren't printed yet. And uh, but and then another series that has almost 200 and and called this day in history. And for instance, the other day I came out on August 9th. I came out with a card for August 9th, 1919, and it was the creation of the fictional character Zorro, which came to life 100 years ago, a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago. So I have those sets, and I'm trying to think what else is a further set. So there's a biographical. So, so you, so you literally make a set for every just kind of things you're interested in. Oh yeah, essentially what it is is, uh, it, what it is is I'm the boss, and I've decided to do what I want. You know, I'm a seven, so I turned seventy years old recently, as you might know, and I decided I'm working on my bucket list. I'm just doing all the things I want to do to fulfill my life and get all my desires out of the way. And I just love the trading cards, and I love history, as we'll get as we'll get more into. Yeah. So essentially, I've used the trading cards to become vehicles to not only study history, but to use them as educational devices. So my cards could actually be very appropriate in the classroom for teachers uh, to teach kids about different, different points in history, different themes in history, different events, different people, different circumstances in history. The biographical cards, the Today in History cards, the science fiction authors, 
Uh, and also do a set for when my high school reunion for 50 years came up, I did a set where it, which included 78 of my classmates in a series of trading cards. So That's amazing. So I think I have six big trading card sets that I've made so far. Thousands and thousands of cards are designed that simply haven't been printed yet because still, even though the costs are down, there's still a huge amount of money. Yeah. Huge amount of money. Well, and, and you haven't you haven't quite figured out the business end of it, but it's uh, it's a great idea. I mean, it's it's I, I love that because it's it's so it's it's directly in line with what you're kind of known for, but it's also completely different. Um, I, I like that. I want to get. I just want to get a, a just a small little list of the other really amazing things that you've done in your life or into. This is not a comprehensive list. Feel free to edit it as you want. Um, but you also you're when you I think right around college for you, uh, you got into transcendental meditation in Boston. Um, you collected vintage newspapers. I think at one point you had seven million vintage newspapers, which equated to a thousand tons. Um, you, of course, had an early amateur ragtime career, uh, 1973 to the early 80s, and you're currently doing music, uh, which we, we can touch on in a second. Um, you collected business cards, uh, and I came across this amazing story. Oh, you're also an oil broker, uh, which is really interesting. You told this great story um, on an interview that I was listening to. I don't know if you can give me like a five to seven minute version of this story because it might be kind of long. But you got into business cards kind of for the same reason, um, you know, if I can make that leap, as you did for trading cards in that you wanted to preserve a historical record of kind of the history of business. Uh, and you had, I think at one point, 50 million business cards and I heard this story about which which kind of weaved you into America, uh, American pop culture uh, in the in the late eighties, early nineties, and that is with the Craig Shergold um, chain letter. He was trying to get um, succeed for a world record, also what you're known for, world records uh, for for greeting cards. He had an inoperable tumor, brain tumor, uh, and this was quite an amazing story. Can you give me like a five minute version of your involvement in that? Is that even well, possible? I'll try to. Five million is really cutting it short. Yeah. But, uh, but that was actually an interview that was on two parts, two videotapes. Did you re- watch both of them? I did. Uh, yeah, I watched both of them. And I'll put links to them so you don't have to rehash the whole thing. I just wanted to touch on the points. Uh, and again, I'll put links to it so people can watch the full story because it is an amazing story, to be perfectly honest with you. I was blown away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, w- I was so pleased that I suddenly had a camera there willing to hear the story because I'd never, never really had the chance to tell anybody the story before. And it really is an interesting story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. In, in a nutshell, if I can make it in a nutshell, in 1978, while in Brunnen, Switzerland, while studying, I suddenly had the idea that tra- business cards could become an amazing display that could be educational and also commemorate history. And I thought if you get enough business cards from enough interesting people and enough interesting themes and different stuff and origins that put them in a display, it could really commemorate the history of the 20th century. So that became my theme in a nutshell. Remembering the 20th century, an educational display of business cards highlighting 100 years of cultural change. And I started trying to find business cards that would you know, be emblematic of that whole thing. And, uh, and as time went on, I found some, I found some, I found some, I found some. Then a whole bunch of them got thrown away on me. And then finally, I really got involved in the project full time. And I started getting news attention for it. And I started getting them and taking them to printing shows. And I think I did five, was it five or was it four big printing shows 
where I put on the, what I found at, at each stage of that development of the process. They put on, on, on display, and the printing industry got really behind me, and I got lots of business cards from lots of people. And eventually, um, including the doubles, I started having like 5 million business cards, and I had a – and I had – it was estimated, of course, but there was a way to measure it by the actual physical space that the business cards would displace when they were actually in business card boxes. So it wasn't a irrational claim that it was five million business cards, but it was all it was five million, I believe. And uh, and so uh, I was getting a lot of news attention, and someone put a pro. Approached me with an, with an letter and said, "You should be giving all your cards." And I thought, "This is a kid in England." And, uh, and it turns out that uh, there was a place somewhere where a kid was – Craig Shergold was getting business cards sent to him because he wanted to go in the Guinness Book of World Records before he died, died of terminal brain cancer. Uh, he wanted to go in the business, Guinness Book of World Records for having the most business cards ever collected by one person, biggest collection ever. And so I didn't think anything of it until I got contacted from – I think it was a Lake Charles, Louisiana hospital who said, Mr. Day, we've heard about your project in the news commemorating business cards, cultural blah, blah. And uh, they said, we have, we were doing a campaign to raise cards for the sick kid. Now we discovered he doesn't need them. Can we send them to you? I said, yes, send them to me. And I didn't expect to think too much about it, but suddenly the box arrived. There was thousands of thousands of all different business cards. And it suddenly dawned on me that, wait a minute, this may be happening a lot. There may be other people also sending cards to the sick kids. So I contacted the Children's Wish Foundation down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I explained to them, uh, I very proudly said, I get packages every day. You know, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get three or four packages a week and letters every day with business cards in them. And the guy there kind of rolled his eyes and sighed and said, Mr. Day, every single day, 20 UPS trucks, 15 Federal Express trucks, uh, all sorts of overnight, airborne overnight trucks pull up to our door and deliver tens of thousands of pieces of mail, many of them big packages, all the business cards that have been gathered by big campaigns put on by citywide groups, civic groups all around the world from almost 200 countries. Walter, I want to pause you for one second because one of the key things of the story, I just want to make sure that people understand, is that the, the world record was an attempt to get the largest number of greeting cards um, this there was a there was a chain letter um, promotion and in one of those it got changed to business cards accidentally then that became viral so instead of getting greeting cards um, the Craig Shergold was getting business cards um, and so it was these business cards well they didn't I mean after some point they didn't want the greeting cards either but it was these accidental business cards that you were then the the recipient of correct. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so I was going to segue into that and explain that, but you did a good job just now. So essentially, so essentially, when I finally met the people at the Children's Foundation, they were very disappointed and upset and sad about it. And they said, it, what it was, it was almost like insult to injury. They were already so overwhelmed by the amount of stuff because, because that, because eventually, see, the record in the beginning was 1.3 million get well cards that had been the record with Guinness. Uh, within weeks of Craig Shergold going on this campaign with the help of the hospital and local businesses, he went up to like three and a half million immediately and broke the record instantaneously. And then within months, he was at 33 million. And Guinness said, OK, enough is enough. That'll be the record. We're not going to accept anymore. That's how it's going to be. But that was just beginning to happen. And the chain letter was going to go around the world again and again and again. I think. I think they won a Good Morning America like three times, but they couldn't get couldn't get people to stop doing it. So the chain letter became bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason I said 
uh, people at the Wish Foundation, Children's Wish Foundation, considered that adding insult to injury was because uh, because they were already overwhelmed by the get well cards coming. Then suddenly the thing morphed, transmuted, and they don't know how it happened or where it happened. Just suddenly they begin to get drowned by a deluge of packages with business cards too. No one knows how that ever happened. All they know is that the, the – the DNA componentry changed and it became a different chain letter going parallel to the one that was still up and running right, right. for the get well cards. That's, that's crazy. Now, I want to put just a little button on this because I want to get to some other things. Um, but what, what's amazing is that through, all the, through this whole thing, during one of the pleas that you mentioned in Good Morning America, um, the way you tell the story is the mother reached into a random pile um, saying, like, we're getting all these letters. Look, this one's from Texas. And that letter happened to be from a Texas billionaire named John Klug who knew a guy who was who was, was perfecting a technique and offered to pay for this for Craig Shergold to get this inoperable um, brain tumor operated on and removed, and he's still alive to this day. So essentially, um, it, it's just quite an amazing story. Uh, and again, I'll put the links up because you got to hear this whole story in depth and your involvement with it. Um, and you ended up having like 50 million cards. Um, and I believe you still have them waiting for a project to kind of develop where you can put these someplace. Is that still true? Well, what happened, there was a famous flood in the summer of 1993 and it destroyed <laughs> about 30 million of the business cards. So they had to be thrown away because they were soaked with mildew. But but I had had time to go through. I had time to go through about four or five million in person with my, with, with people helping me, and we pulled out probably a few hundred thousand of ones that were tremendously good candidates for the display. So we are okay. There's still another probably a couple hundred thousand left that haven't been gone through. That maybe three or four or five hundred thousand. Uh, the the number's not certain, but. No, we're, we're in good shape to actually make the display happen, and they're still on hold because they don't have a home and they don't have find funding, and I still I just have to get the word out enough for people to understand what it is and believe in it and help me turn this into a uh, some sort of national museum that actually uh, uses the business cards to show all the whimsy, incredible creativity and versatility and uh, just the path that business and culture took through the 20th century, as shown – uh, with business cards being the tracks that they left behind. I think it's a great idea. I mean, one of the things I think that would be the biggest selling point is you guys have an incredible amount of very unique and interesting cards, including celebrities. I think you mentioned in there, although this, <laughs> this, this, this example is extraordinarily controversial right now, but you have Bill Cosby as a shoe, when he was a shoe salesman before he was a comedian. Um, you know, even with the controversy behind him, that is an extraordinarily rare, uh, and I would argue valuable um, for several reasons, card, and that is not the only one of its kind that you have. Uh, I think that would be just well, an should, unbelievable uh, uh, display. I should interject this. I should interject this. Uh, I don't have the Bill Cosby card. When I used to be on the radio and TV and newspaper, I used to be billed as the business card detective. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to get on the show and I say, Who's got Bill Cosby's card when he was a shoe salesman? I never had the card. Oh. I agree with it. It would be fantastically rare and valuable. I never, never had it. It's kind of funny. Uh, it, it's easy for that kind of stuff to be confused when you're talking about it in the media. Sure, sure. I was actually in a quest to find it. That's why it was brought to everybody's attention. And that same phenomenon is going on with Al Capone's card as a used furniture dealer. A newspaper reporter misunderstood and did a story that actually had Al Capone's card as a used furniture dealer. And then when it appeared in like an Associated Press article, 
uh, someone in Schenectady, in York, cut it out and sent it to Ripley's, believe it or not. And they did an actual published cartoon that shows a hand <laughs> holding a card and uh, used furniture on it or something. And it says, Walter Day of Fairfield, Iowa. It has a business card from – so I actually made it to Ripley's, believe it or not, as a cartoon because of the mistake that they thought I actually had the card. No, I would uh, – see, I knew that Kevin Costner had been like a – you know, like a a financial advisor or something. I can't remember now. And other people had done this had, had been different, bit different, had worn different job hats. And I was trying to find their cards. And that was part of my great celebrity business card search that I conducted on many, 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 many radio shows. I, I love that you were in Ripley's Believe. I mean, you're you're one of the or nots in the Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty pretty impressive. I was a not. Yeah, I was a not. Yeah. And it was so it was so much fun. <laughs> one time I was on a big radio show. Big radio show. It was an hour-long show, and I think it was Atlanta. And so suddenly the radio show talk show says, host says, well, Mr. Date, just how much is 50 million business cards? And I said to him, well, if you put the business cards end-to-end, it'll generate enough electricity to power New York for a year. <laughs> Did anyone believe that? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, well, see, what it is What it is is playing off – I was playing off an old Ripley, believe it or not kind of thing from a decade – from a generation earlier where they'd say either – if you can take the power out of a, out of the atoms of a single bumblebee, yeah. the, the light of a firefly, it'll generate New York for a whole year. Or if you put all the cars in America bumper to bumper, they'll go around the moon three times. Right, right, right. So I kind of merged them together into a crazy analogy. <laughs> that is a crazy analogy. That feels like a very Walter Dayism. I like that. Um, that one, that that one, that one belongs on a T-shirt. You know, in in kind of in closing here, I I, I want to come full circle to to kind of where you are right now. So you, when you left Twin Galaxies in two thousand eight, you went on to start a music career. Can you kind of in closing describe how what that developed into, where people can hear your music, and what kind of music you do? Yes, and thank you for asking. Uh, in nineteen eighty five, I had this glamorous girlfriend. Who one night called me up and said, "Walter, I secretly have being seen. I've secretly been seeing a friend of yours." Oh yeah, yeah. So, needless to say, we broke up that night, and I was extremely heartbroken. It was the only time in my life I had deep, deep, intense heartbreak, heartache, and uh, and those people who have gone through it know what I'm talking about. One of those things that's so mind-boggling and so disturbing. And so much fear and anxiety and you lose your breath and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, and it went on for weeks. And a couple couple of weeks into it, I suddenly started hearing music inside me. It was like I was listening to a radio show, except the music that I was listening to, they were all pop songs. And, uh, and they had words and lyrics and hooks and all sorts of stuff like that and harmonies and melodies. They all had melodies. But I was listening to songs that didn't exist. You ever see? Did you see that movie about the Beatles? Recently, recently called Yesterday. No, but it's on my list. It's on my list. Okay, it's it's a fun movie, and uh, and it's sort of, sort of similar because it's like I was listening to a whole a whole repertoire of music hmm. that somewhere had been written someplace else, and only I had access to it. Hmm. I was listening to like a radio and hearing all these songs that didn't exist in the world, but it's like they were all mine to do something with. So I started singing them and playing them into tape recorders and writing down the lyrics I was hearing until by the time it really settled down, it was 138 songs. Wow. So I have 138 songs to work with. 
And the reason they're not out there now is only because of psychological and emotional stuff I've gone through to try and, try and wade my way through all the other issues that I've gone through in my life to get to the point where everything's uh, – I, I, I don't – in terms of the music, I don't multitask very well. I have to clear the decks and only focus on the music for it to come out on the level that I that I think it can come out. And I'm literally on the precipice, on the edge of it happening right now, where I have everything I think out of the way essentially, and I can focus on doing the music and and and, and get people in here to help me because um, the mu- music is very lush and developed and complex with lots of layers to it so that i hear i hear melodies when i play my guitars and sing the songs like an acoustic guitar singing along with it i'm playing along to an orchestra that i hear playing inside so i don't know how many people commonly have that experience in the music industry but somehow that's my experience and uh, some of my songs see my songs aren't really developed and out there yet but some of them uh, in a very rudimentary simple simple simplified form have been sung during the soundtracks, during the uh, course of The King of Kong, uh, Chasing Ghosts, and Man vs. Snake, three movies that uh, I'm noted to be in. So people can hear some tidbits, some kernel uh, of some of the songs in these movies. And you'll also find some of them on YouTube videos if you look for Walter Day. So uh, my music is almost the most important thing to me. Actually, really, it is the most important thing to me on my bucket list. And... Uh, and if I don't do that music, I'll have to come back and get born again. Do you have examples that I can I can share anywhere? You could go to YouTube, and you could hear me sing Three Lies. And there's another one where Walter plays his first. There's a bunch there on YouTube. You just have to look up Walter Day music, and you'll find probably about a dozen. Okay, that sounds great. I'll, I'll put little. I'll put links there. I'm going to try to track those down and put them on there. Um, so, where can people find you? Do you do social media? Um, you mentioned some of your websites. Can you just reiterate so people can find you when uh, when they're done with this? Oh, they can find me on Facebook. I'm at you know. You look up Walter Day, and you. You can find me on Facebook. You'll see the referee outfit and the beard, and you won't mistake me for Britney Spears. Right, right. And you're on Twitter as well. Um, and uh, I'll put links to all that stuff on, on the page, or links to your website. Uh, well, Walter, I, I, thank you so much. This has been an absolute honor. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're actually a, you're a very smart person. You're a smart interviewer. You did, you did a level of homework that was beyond the level of homework and preparation that a lot of, because I've been interviewed a lot of times, you know, because as, as the old newspaper guy, I was in a huge amount of media. And, and as the yearbook guy, we didn't talk about the yearbooks, but I was in the media all the time as the yearbook detective because I would buy high school yearbooks that pictured famous people in them yeah. and sell them to collectors at a higher price. I'd have yearbooks for Madonna and for Hulk Hogan. Oh, wow. For Elvira, for Mickey Mantle, for Johnny Carson, for Ronald Reagan. And so I did that. I traveled uh, uh, all over North America um, showing yearbooks. I used to give lectures at yearbook conventions too that would be put on by the yearbook manufacturers for high school kids who are on the yearbook staff. So, so, so all these things. And, uh, so I've been interviewed a lot. So you did a lot of very intelligent preparation. And so your questions were good. So I appreciate that very much. And I hope that your audience, your listeners realize that you are a good, good a spokesperson for the popular culture of our times. Well, I uh, thank you very much, and thank that is very eloquent. I, I cannot tell you how much of an honor it is to hear that from you. Thank you for that, Walter. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night.
Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this episode and want to learn more and learn more about Fascinating Nouns as a show, go to FascinatingNouns.com. You can learn more about the show. You can watch the clips we talked about, watch the news articles, learn more about the guests. Bottom of the page, you're going to find links to the guest social media as well as the show's social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can even subscribe to the newsletter, which just comes out once a week and lets you know the up to coming episodes, behind the scenes stuff, and all of my future projects. And if you go to the top of the screen, you can find links to the shows all the past shows under the episode link and even past guests you can find a link for the past guests very easy to use and of course don't forget to subscribe to the show in itunes stitcher google play and tune in links at the bottom of the page as well and if you like this show you can love my other show fascinating gadgets gizmos and gear-based technologies i take a team of experts and we analyze a piece of pop culture technology something you would find in movies or tv shows we're going to do the quantum pager from Captain Marvel. We're going to do Compound V from The Boys, not just superhero stuff. We're even going to analyze Xenomorphs from the Alien movies, all coming up on Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies. It's FGGGBT.com, FGGGBT.com. It's a great show, and if you like that show, you can love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.